on the Word of God to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. We welcome those visiting with us today. We are going through the Sermon on the Mount. The only sermon, as I mentioned last week, where the preacher should be the focus, that is Christ preaching this to us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Hear now the word of God. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven will, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. October, Reformation Month. It reminds us, this month does, of God bringing the return to the gospel to his church in the 1500s. We think of men like Martin Luther, and we might not think of men like Peter the Barber. Who has heard of Peter the Barber? Kids, have you heard of him? No? We're going to learn about him a little bit today. He was Martin Luther's barber. Literally, he cut his hair. He loved to cut bowl cuts. You know that kind of Martin Luther bowl cut look? He was one of the parishioners at the church where Luther was a pastor. And he asked a question that maybe you have. How do I pray? And Martin Luther, who had all sorts of things going on, wrote a little book called A Simple Way to Pray for this particular church member. He applied it in a way that Peter the barber would know. Kids, have you ever had your hair cut and you maybe are at a place where the barber's not really paying attention and whoops, that's a little bit too much off over here or look out, I cut your ear over there. I, I had my ear cut once and I'm still remembering it. I still maybe have jitters as I get my hair cut now. Luther said, he who prays must be like a good industrious barber who keeps his mind and eyes precisely upon his razor and hair and knows whether to cut or trim, lest by too much gabbing or looking about aimlessly, he slashes someone's mouth or nose or ear or throat. Thus, every job, if it is to be done well, demands the full attention of our mind and our members. So important today is Our brains are being rewired, literally, by the use of technology. Luther goes on, Peter, if you're struggling to pray, like we all tend to be struggling at times, what should you do? Flee to the Psalms. The Psalms will help you pray, Peter. If you're feeling, I don't really feel like going to church today. My my heart is not in it. Go to church, he said. That is where the problem of the lack of joy and enthusiasm God will help sort out there as you're worshiping. Peter himself, sadly, after reading and receiving these words from Luther, fell into grievous sin. 
Maybe you've fallen into grievous sin. Maybe you are there right now. The Bible is not Pollyannish. After receiving this, Peter got drunk one night. His son-in-law may also have been drunk. His son-in-law bragged that he was impervious to the stroke of a sword, that he basically could survive anything. And Peter killed his son-in-law. After that, Luther didn't abandon him. This is awful, right? Luther went to him. Luther ministered to him in the midst of this grievous sin. We don't know what happened to Peter after this. Did he read Luther's instruction about forgiveness of sins and repenting and fleeing to Christ? We don't know. But we do know in the word of God that the word helps us to pray in times of great joy and great sorrow, in times of struggle with sin. And it tells us to pray by pleading. If you've stopped praying, God's word says, start again. If you're praying and struggling, God's word by his spirit says, press on, be bold, persist. God loves to answer the prayers of his people. First, we see a bold request. There's a lot of confusion about praying today. Sometimes someone will pray, and as is the story of one man, he was stuck upside down in a well. Someone found him, he survived, and he began a cult of those who think God only answers prayers while we pray upside down. (laughs) Even professing atheists will say, I'll pray if things get bad enough. But the context here in Matthew reminds us We must not pray with vain, babbling repetition. And we must not pray in a formalistic, mechanical way. We struggle with that. The early church struggled with that, though. Do you ever feel like it's impersonal as you pray, or routine, or your mind is just scattered? This comes out of the book of Acts. The church is gathered. They're praying in Acts 12 for the release of Peter from prison. Without them knowing it, Peter himself, by the power of the grace of God, was released. An angel woke him up. The chains fell off. And he went to Mary's house and knocked on the door. As he knocked on the door, there's a prayer meeting going on for him. Rhoda, the house servant, went to answer. She recognized Peter's voice. In her joy, she went back to those praying and said, Peter has been freed. And how do they respond? They didn't believe her. You're out of your mind, they said. It can't be true. Peter kept knocking. They opened the door and who's there? Peter. They were saying, in effect, you can't be Peter. We've been praying for your release, but we know it's not likely to happen. That's going on in Acts 12. Loved ones, how often in our weakness of faith do we pray for things Resigned that not much will happen. How often do we become functional atheists or fatalists? How soon we stop after we start? We get more excited sometimes to talk to a friend about a football game than to talk to God. We need help. Ask. Seek. Knock. That's what the Lord says. The context is coming out of the Lord's prayer. And we are reminded in the Lord's Prayer that by God's grace, we have what we need. Over and over in this Sermon on the Mount, we are 
told God is our Father, that He knows you, that you don't need to hide from Him the struggles of our hearts, that God loves you, that we don't need to pretend to be what we're not before God. Kids, sometimes you might try to hide things from mom and dad. Maybe it's candy and you kind of stash it somewhere. And Well, mom and dad, they might not know at that moment, but they eventually find out, right? If that's true at the human level, how much more true is it when it comes to God? When we know God is our father, Sinclair Ferguson says, we are freed from enslavement to what other people are thinking about us. The fear of man. Peer pressure. What they're saying about us at school kids or on social media or behind our back. Ferguson says, people can create an entire personality based on the expectations of others. It's dangerous. It's false. But knowing God is our father means what others think about us doesn't cripple us. And so what do we ask? God, help me to have a fear of God, not a fear of man. That's a good thing to ask in prayer. Asking reminds us that the pattern of this Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount is not sanctification by scolding. Do you know what I mean by that? We don't grow to be more like Christ when we're scolded in a harsh way. Just do better. Just try better. This is not sanctification by vinegar. How many of us go home today and we're thinking, I can't wait to drink a glass of vinegar. It repels. That's not what God is doing here. He's not scolding you. He's saying, I love you. You are my children. I want you to ask me for things that you need. That's what he's reminding us. We have not, James says. Why? Because we ask not. What's the connection in this part of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he has just been speaking, Jesus has, about judgmentalism and being discerning. He's given a command. Don't judge your brother. Now he's giving you a comfort. Ask and it will be given to you. So one thing we need is, God, help me to be humble and not to judge my brother. Help me to be conscious of my need for you. Do you know that in the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, the Pharisee never asks God for anything. He thinks he's fine. He spends his time telling God what he ought to be doing. The tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One thing to do then is to ask God, help me trust you today. Help me trust in Jesus personally. Asking means, Lord, by myself, I'm foolish. I tend to maybe either be impulsive when I have a decision to make or overly slow and paralyzed with indecision. God, grant me wisdom. Philippians 1 Give me knowledge and discernment that I might approve what is excellent. That my love may abound more and more. That's the positive side of the non-judgmental spirit. Help me to see things clearly. Help me to know, Ferguson says, what is good and better and best in this situation. Wisdom comes from above. 
James says. God loves to generously give it. Asking God, I'm hypercritical. That's the context here. My words can be so harsh to others. Forgive me for that. Change my heart. God, I'm defensive and thin-skinned. Help me not to take things so personally. God, I'm asking that you would help me respond to wise, discerning criticism in faith, in repentance, in humility. God, change me. This is not just a one-and-done prayer. But God, over a lifetime, make me more like Christ. In our Sunday school, we talked a lot today about patience. God, when I'm thinking about my own kingdom, the thorns that come out of a thorny heart of pride often bark and command and tell others to do things. God, help me to respond in love as you have shown love to me. Ask, God, preserve me. The fact that you're still here, the fact that you're confessing Christ, the fact that you're worshiping God today is an answer to this prayer, loved ones. God is keeping you. Ask. Ask and seek, he goes on. Jesus says, something's lost that's valuable. Maybe it's something in your home that you misplaced. At one point, I lost my wedding ring as I was swimming. I knew that it had fallen off. I knew that it wasn't in front of me, and I was searching and seeking to do all we could to find it. One of our kids actually found it on the bottom of a lake right near where we were swimming. But when you're looking for something valuable, you're doing all you can to seek for it. God, I pray for conversions. That means I need your grace to get involved in hospitality and witnessing. I want to be closer with the Lord Jesus. That means searching the scriptures. Lord, give me a job. That means sending out resumes. Ask, seek. And the goal of this is finding, right? But maybe you're seeking and you're still struggling. So what does Jesus say? Ask, seek, and knock. What does the idea of a knocking mean, kids? It means a door is closed. Perhaps we have tried and failed to open a door in our life. Maybe because we're trying to do it in our own strength. Maybe we're trying just to Use a crowbar and force it open. and Force this thing to happen. Maybe in our unbelief. Maybe we're failing to plead for God's presence. Knock means we can't open it, but God can. Paul says that in the reading of the law today. God, open a door for me for the preaching of the mystery of Christ. God has to open that door. The idea here is a knuckle that's knocking so much that it's bleeding. Over and over, pleading, persistently. God, I can't do this, but you can. Here's a a parable for that. Don't you love how Jesus speaks in ways we can understand so wonderfully? Luke 11 is a parallel to this passage in Matthew 7. And in Luke 11, Jesus says, okay, there's three men here. I'm going to talk to you about persistent pleading prayer. We'll call them Bob, Joe, and Jim. Luke 11, 
5 to 8. I'm going to paraphrase this a bit. So you're Bob. It's late, it's midnight, and an unexpected guest shows up. Joe. In those days in the East, hospitality was an enormous thing, honor and shame. And if you didn't have food or a place to stay for someone, you were really shaming them and dishonoring them. The problem is, Joe shows up and Bob doesn't have food. And in our context, it would be like the day of your wedding and there's no food for anyone at the reception. Just massive embarrassment. So you run to Jim's house, it's midnight, and you ask Jim, Jim, I'm going to shame my name, I'm going to dishonor my friend, I need food. Unannounced, middle of the night, you start knocking. You knock louder and louder. You say, I need three breads. That's way overkill, meaning hospitality, lavish, generous. Jim says, I don't want to answer your door. It's late. I don't want to wake up my kids. You say, well, my kids ate all my food this week. All these not open. I have nowhere to go, and I got a friend I got to feed. Jim says, go away four times. Don't bother me. The door's shut. I'm not going to give you anything. You keep knocking. You won't leave until you get food to give to your guest. This is outrageous in that day and age. This kind of boldness in this parable is how we are to pray. Not that God is stingy, not that God is sleeping, but that we are to, not in timidity, but continued persistence, say, God, you are my Father. Provide and do what you have promised to do. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying, the sinless Son of God, hour after hour. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, we're not the sinless Son of God. But if Jesus himself shows the importance of prayer in that moment, how much more we who are weak and frail need to pray like this man boldly, or like the widow going before the judge, begging. That's the idea here. Someone begging for food. Someone begging for help. Because we are on our own, hanging like a thread. We can't preserve ourselves. We can't save ourselves. But God can, and he does. There's nothing we can do unless God helps us. The Bible says God rewards those who seek him. It says that one of the ways God has appointed for us to grow in assurance of faith is through prayer like this, communing with the Lord. Prayer, then, is not just a moment. It's a lifestyle. Live before the face of God. The constancy of its beat is like a heartbeat. It's the test of whether our spiritual life and our gratitude is genuine. And we struggle here, but we pray, God, help me. Help me not to just use you. Here's how one person puts it. People whose religion consists of using God say, I've got my goals. I want to be happy. I want to be successful. And you come to God and say, what do I have to do? Do I have to come to church? Okay, I'll come to church if I get that. 
Do I have to clean up my life? Do I have to pray? How often? How much? It's like a union negotiation. That's an idea of using God. But someone who loves God says, God, I want to serve you. You created me. I've rebelled against you. I've sinned. I've tried to be my own master of my own kingdom. But I see that Jesus died for me. I see and believe that you've given me your Holy Spirit. I want to love you. I want to serve you. Fulfill your promise to me. Secondly, from bold requests to certain promises. Jesus says, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open. It's guaranteed. It's assured as you come, how? By faith in Jesus. This is not a promise just for the most mature. It's for the weak, the downtrodden. It's a promise not focused on us wearing out God. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying that you're just going to wear him down and just kind of force him. No, the focus is on God who hears, who wants to answer more than we want to pray. And the promise here is not in doubt at all. Why? Because it's made by the Son of God himself, speaking with the fullness and the authority of his Father. Here's how Jesus says this. Don't you love again how he's so vivid? Okay, here's a picture of a father and a son, and the son is hungry. Kids, you probably were hungry this morning or you're hungry right now. And now you've got options to eat. You can either have bread and fish or stones and snakes. In the day in which Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, there were literally flat rocks that kind of looked like loaves of bread, and there were eels that were kind of catfish-like swimming in the Sea of Galilee that looked like snakes. That's kind of why he uses these analogies. So kids, if you're hungry and you go to dad, is dad going to say, okay, I'm going to trick you, and instead of giving you bread, I'm going to slip in one of these stones from the lake? There's your dinner. No. Or is dad going to trick you a second time and say, okay, you want a fish? I'm going to give you a snake that looks like the catfish, but it's really a snake. No. Jesus says even evil earthly fathers, reminding us of our sinful nature, reminding us that we are not good and righteous in ourselves, Even an evil earthly father will give you something to eat, not a stone. On that note, maybe you've had an earthly father who has given you worse than stones. Maybe you've had an earthly father who's given you much better than just bread. Whatever your situation is, our heavenly father is perfect and good and generous. He's not stingy. He's not holding something back. That's what Satan said when it says serpent here. It reminds us of Satan. Satan in the Garden of Eden said to Adam and Eve, God doesn't really love you. God's restricting you. You may not eat from any of these trees. God wants to kill your joy and kill your fun. The lie of Satan then is the same as the lie now. But that's not God. 
He's abundant in generosity. He's filled with grace and mercy, overflowing to his children. Does that mean, then, that God answers prayers and gives us anything we ask for? James 4 comes to mind again. You have not because you ask not, but what does James say? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So this is not saying name it, claim it. I'm thinking of the car of my dreams, and if I pray enough and knock enough, I'll just get it on the front of my doorstep. No, that's the false health, wealth, prosperity, heresy. Asking you will receive leads to the gospel. Yes, God gives you your daily bread. But there's no promise in the Bible that God will heal all Christians of diseases in this life. Yes, in heaven, not on earth. There's no promise that Christians will have the best business or the best grades or be the best athletes. This is not like rubbing a lamp and out comes Aladdin. Because what if foolish children ask for a snake? In our foolishness, we've all probably asked for something like a snake. An irresponsible parent might give them a snake, but a wise parent won't, and God never will. If we ask for things that aren't good in themselves or aren't good for us, God denies them. One pastor said, I thank God that God doesn't do everything I ask, that he shuts certain doors and opens other doors. God does not always answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. In that sense, God always answers prayers if we pray for the things he tells us to pray for. God Hear our prayer according to your will. How do we pray that way? Opening the Bible. I don't know about you, but it's hard to pray for a long period of time for me without my Bible open. But with my Bible open, the Psalms in particular, but prayers like Philippians 1 or Ephesians 3 or Colossians, they give us a picture of what God delights to hear. He wants to hear his promises And he wants us to speak his word back to him. When we're drowsy or doubting, pray the word of God. That God would change our desires because prayer expresses desire. It's something from deep within generated by the spirit of God. The deepest longings of our hearts come out when we pray. Paul my heart's desire and my prayer to God for my kinsmen. The people I love is for their salvation. That came out. Not half-hearted. Yeah, we struggle there, but a desire by the Spirit of God that's like a teenager who's saying, I got to meet my friends tonight. Where are the car keys? And they're searching for them. And they're knocking down drawers to find them. Where are the keys? That kind of passion. Jesus is not saying we should desire everything. Not foolish things, not sinful things, but that the Spirit of God would hold our affections by the Word of God. 
Sometimes people pray for wrong things, like Jonah. He asked God to take his life, but thankfully God didn't. Some people pray for good things, but God doesn't answer as they think. David, who prayed fervently that the son he had with Bathsheba would live, but he didn't. In God's wisdom, we don't know why. Paul prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be removed fervently, but God himself said, no, I want you to rely on my grace, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Prayer is not a way then of getting God to do what we want in a selfish way. It's not trying to twist his arm. It's a bold, pleading, persistent request for God to do what he has promised to do. God saved this friend who's not a believer. I love them. I want them to love you. One man in the 1800s prayed for over 60 years for a friend. And that friend ended up being converted to Christ after the man who prayed had died. Persistent. Asking for God to to help our family. Maybe our family's struggling right now with something. Maybe we're struggling as a church to reach the lost. Maybe we're not praying as we ought with fervency. God, help us. Hear us. Answer us. Practically, what does this look like? David Paulison says, here's three types of prayers. Kingdom prayers, circumstantial prayers, wisdom prayers. This is a way to kind of think how do we pray as a church and as individuals. Kingdom prayers. Your kingdom come. God, your will be done. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Build your church as you promised. Circumstantial prayers. I have a financial issue, a health struggle. A loved one who's dealing with suffering. Those things are good, health issues. That's often where we focus. But God wants us to go beyond that. Paulison says, when we pray for health requests just for the health concern, it's as though we are making the prayer request behind a video camera, telling someone about what we want God to do in our life, but we're not in the camera. Meaning, God, I don't want just a health concern healed, but I want you to change me. That's what he's getting at. Because medicine's not salvific. Medicine loses every patient. Every doctor has a 100% failure rate in the long run. As much as we praise doctors for medicine, or praise God for doctors in medicine now. But we don't put our salvific hope in them because if we did, it's a complete loss. God, as Joe goes to surgery, we know that we're tempted to be afraid. Help him to know that whether he lives or he dies, he belongs to the Lord, that he will rise again from the dead one day. Help him to cast his anxieties on you. That's one way to pray for someone going into surgery. Our sister, Julie, this is just hypothetical, has an ongoing illness. 
when we have ongoing illnesses, it's te- we're tempted to kind of be discouraged and irritable and turn inward. Help her in the midst of that. Yes, heal her, but help her to trust in you and not to be downcast. Those are some ways, Pallison says, that we pray. Unsaved relatives, that's another thing we often pray for. Holidays coming up, so if we're going to visit our unsaved relatives, yes, we pray for the salvation, but God, change me. Help me not to be grouchy toward them. Help me to reach out to them in love, these relatives that I might have some issues with over the years. So we want to pray both for heat requests, change this illness, heal us, help me in the finances, but we also pray, Paulison says, for thorn to fruit requests, wisdom things, like we're talking about in Sunday school. God, change me by your Holy Spirit. What is one prayer that God will love to answer? God gives gifts. But do you know what a gift is that he loves to give? The one thing Calvin said to be sought above all else, do you know what it is? The Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, the same parallel passage that we're looking at here, Jesus says, our Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. The greatest gift God gives is himself. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely, graciously give us all things? God gives us his son. God gives you his spirit to bring you to faith in Christ, to bring you to believe the gospel, to convict you of sin, to grow you in fruit, and one day to raise you from the dead. The Holy Spirit will do that. And by the gift of the Spirit, we have communion with God right now as we pray in our weakness. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit helps us. Our prayer meeting helps us. As we come together, we hear the prayers of each other. And our hearts are warmed and kindled as we meditate on God's promises to us and as we're blessed by the prayer of this one and that one and our prayers ascend to the throne of God as the Spirit intercedes within us, as Christ intercedes for the Father at his right hand. We intercede, but by the Spirit, God intercedes for us. You say, well, I'm struggling. Maybe not Peter the barber type struggling, but maybe. Maybe you're struggling with something like drunkenness or a rage and an anger against someone that God has preserved you from acting out on the worst of. Maybe you're struggling with a coldness of heart. Maybe you're struggling with just blah. Asking for God to come and to meet with us as a church. Prayer is a lifestyle issue. It's about focusing on the greatness of the glory of God. And Ephesians 3 tells us, here's one way to help. The Holy Spirit is the power of God in you. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So all that you ask, all that you can think of asking, 
more than you can think of asking, more abundantly than you can think of asking, far more abundantly. You see how it's building, it's a crescendo, like a mountain, you're heading to Pike's Peak. Our ability to ask God, or what we can even conceive of asking, cannot stretch to the limits of what God can accomplish. Paul is not just thinking of this life only. He's thinking of eternity. The inexhaustible kindness that God will give us in eternity in Christ. Kids, eternity is beyond measure. There's no prayer you can ask that's too great for God to answer. God's love for you in Christ is greater than the sin that you struggle with. There's no cry of your heart that is beyond what he wants to answer. To him be the glory, Paul says. In the church, God's glory is present by his word and spirit. His glory will never depart from his church until the day when his resurrected people enter the reality of the heavenly Jerusalem. To him be glory in the church as his church expands, as sinners are converted, as the nations come to worship the Lord. To him be glory in his church as the church is an embassy of the new creation right now. To him be glory throughout all generations. It's passed down from the older generations to you kids. It's like a baton. God's covenant promises. You take up the wonderful promises of God and pass them to your kids. To him be glory through all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to taste right now the greatness of your infinite, all-satisfying glory. And yet, Lord, what we taste now is but a foretaste of what is to come. And so help us not to lose heart. Give us your spirit to commune together as a church with you in prayer. Grow us in wisdom and love, discernment. We are weak and feeble. We need your help. We need to see your beauty. We need to once again taste and see that Christ is good. And we need everyone as a family of God to help us in this. Help us to pray for each other this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.